Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. Lyndall Ekman is the managing director of Foundry Group Next, a new $500 million foundry fund dedicated to investing in other VC funds as a limited partner, as well as directly into growth stage companies. He previously spent 13 years overseeing the private portfolio, including venture capital and private equity investing at the University of Texas Endowment, or UTIMCO. He's a wealth of knowledge and has backed some of the best performing venture funds in the world over the past decade. Foundry Group Next has now officially closed and recently announced their new fund, but we recorded this episode a month ago, so we need to read a quick disclaimer on their behalf, namely that... This discussion is solely for informational purposes and is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. Without further ado. So, Linda, we're really excited to have you here today. We also have a secret guest. We won't, Our first we won't say guest. who when. We'll have Linda introduce her in a minute. But um, we do have a a fourth person in the room today Bonus. in addition to uh in addition to alex and myself as usual um so super excited to have you i'd love to just get the quick rundown on uh who you are and a little bit about your background and uh particularly um you know an overview of the, the 12 years you spent at, at utimco if that's even possible and and as well as the recent job change all right, so 12 years. Yes, yes. <laughs> Explain yourself. In a minute. The last Explain dozen years. <laughs> yes. And and so where'd you come from and all of that background? Got it. <laughs> How long do I have? <laughs> <laughs> so um, Texas kid, uh, born and bred, grew up in Fort Worth, um, went to TCU undergrad. Uh, that led me to uh, a job uh, in accounting, believe it or not. My mom said, you need to go get something, a certificate of some sort. So I was, I'm a Skill. CPA, Skill. a yes. CPA I am. And uh, that was great because I actually went to work on the tax side of the house doing a bunch of M&A work for private equity firms, TBG and Bass Family. Um, very uh, quickly went to like the deep M&A and due diligence side. So I saw it. This is back when data rooms were actually a room that you flew to <laughs> mm. and had wow. paper in it mm. and you went through the files. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, that makes me old, but it's it really wasn't that long ago, right. actually, right. Uh, that you did that. Uh, did that for five years, realized I didn't want to be a tax accountant when I grew up. I uh, went back to business school. I always wanted to live in Austin anyway. If you live in Texas, at some point you want to live in Austin. Mm. Um, so I went down there for business school. Uh, it was fun. Can't say I learned a whole lot. By that time, I'd gotten a CFA as well. Right. Um, I did make a lot of good friends, and it led me to the job at Utimco. Uh, the job at Utimco... How did that come to be? Uh, totally backed into it. Yeah. Uh, friend of a friend, got a job. Um, he, he got an internship and I said, do they need another intern? And right. sure enough, they did. And they paid, which was even better. Nice. Um, and at the time, how big was the investment office? So the, the total number of investment professionals is around 12. Uh, there were roughly 25 probably accountants in that point in time. Right. And it was about $13 billion pool of capital. So still big. But I mean, I don't know about you guys, but think about your experience growing up. You, you see... Series seven and finance industry, and maybe you guys you know grew up around here, so you were more attuned to it. But you don't think about who manages those big pools of capital, be it insurance companies or pension funds, or you know where that money um, kind of goes and how it's right. how it's multiplied for the benefit of the the uh, beneficiaries. This was my first exposure to that, and it turns out it's a very still is today a relatively small cottage community where we all know each other. Um, where, you know, you try and do the best investing you can, completely different from retail. In retail, you think about stocks and bonds and laddering in stocks and bonds. Right. This gives you exposure to things like venture capital. When I went to Utemco, uh, I, you know, I was working on the hedge fund side as an intern, switched to the dark side of private equity um, pretty quickly. Uh, right after school, there were three of us. 
two people, let, one later went on to be a mom, another one left to go do something else, kind of left me in charge in 2006, 2007. Of all of the all private privates, equity all and privates. venture. So yeah, uh, buy, credit, buyout, yep. growth, uh, developed in emerging markets. The thing I liked doing was venture. Uh, I when said you it, showed up, did you even know that half those things existed? I, had, I mean, I had an idea of what buyouts yeah. were yeah, yeah. from from my or previous venture. job. Uh, I had a sense for what venture was because the late 90s were awesome. I was making more money trading Dell op leap options, three-year leap options, than I right. was at my job at KPMG. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> Totally legal. All fine. And then shortly but losing, it was fun. And then shortly losing more money. Or <laughs> Happily, I cashed out along the okay, way. Yeah, yeah. I was one of those gamblers that swept, you know, their their yeah. winnings uh, as they went along. But literally, made more money uh, one year right. doing that than I did in the base salary right. at KPMG. Right. Uh, so great years at Utemco early on. Then I took over, built a team. The, the two hardest things we did were um, venture capital and emerging markets. And I, I felt like as the more experienced person, as the leader, you should go do those things. So I had someone really great that do credit and buyout stuff for me, added a team member there. And then I and a, and a woman named Laura Jeremko partnered up on the venture piece of it. And she and I built a great portfolio of early stage managers. We can talk about why that in a little bit. Um, and then in emerging markets, uh, I, I spent a lot of time investing both in growth companies, but also in venture stuff in say China was a place right. we were active in venture as well. Gave me great perspective on capital markets broadly. Mm. But when I found that when I went home or on the weekends, I'm reading blog posts, I'm following along what venture guys are doing, you know, I'm I'm spending way too much money on the portfolio companies. Like right. I'm buying every gadget uh, in our portfolio. And at Utimco, you had to buy it yourself. There were no freebies. Um, so I'm spending money on that stuff. You know, my wife's laughing at me because, you know, I've got a Sphero running around, the dog chasing it. And, you know, it's right. all sorts of toys, most of them ending up in a box, of course. Um, it also helped that I had my best returns in venture. And therefore, I had built a closer network because I liked it. And when, you know, when someone's excited, when, a, when an entrepreneur is yeah. passionate about something, you see that and you want to spend more time with them. When a VC saw an LP that was passionate and excited about what they were doing, understood what they were doing, well, it, it just drew them closer. Now, great platform. Utemco was awesome. Huge pool of capital. But I had to write $25, 50000000 million checks. Super hard to do when you want to invest in 25 or $50 million funds. Right. <laughs> so scale and just, problem. just so our audience knows, I mean, an LP typically represents 10 to 20 percent of a fund. So if you're investing 25 to 50 million dollar checks, that means 100, 200 plus million dollar funds at least. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. And that was the limitation. Right. You know, you didn't go a scale. GPs get uncomfortable, too, by the way, if you're more than 10 or 20 percent of a fund because they have customer concentration. Mm -hmm. Right. So they have signaling risk the same as an entrepreneur, uh, you know. You have entrepreneurs at one level, GPs at another level, and, and above that, LPs. And, and what year? What year did you start investing in venture? So I got lucky uh, in two thousand four, right when I first started leading deals myself. Yeah, uh, my first deal was Union Square Ventures, two thousand four. How old were you? Thirty-one. Wow! So like early thirties, just took over the private fund activities basically right. major endowment. So I was an early, that was one of the still three ventures. of us. And right. the first, I mean, picked it out of a pile of PPMs on my desk. Wow. So that was a time when nobody could raise capital <laughs> at all. Right. Not Fred Wilson. Right. Right. Not Brad Burnham. Right. I mean, the two of them together had an interesting track record. They had a thesis that appealed to me. And I think it was because of my age. And, uh, and I have to give credit to the rest of the team. They were similar age. We were all in our early 30s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it was useful that we had that perspective and that we had all grown up with computers and chat rooms and all that sort of thing that it appealed to us, this whole idea of networking and, and the idea of taking everything to the web at that so point. So in other words, you feel like because you were maybe a user in a way that other, other LPs weren't at the time, you feel like you maybe understood the the USB thesis at that time better than most. I think that I think that's another way of saying it. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. In in our in some ways, we were early uh, net natives. Yeah, and that we had used it, and we were we had played on the web. I mean, in 1994, how old were you in 1994? 
You were 10. Right, exactly. Here we are. So in 1994, I built a website with the old HTML markup language. It was terrible. It was the ugliest. Like, I I wouldn't (laughs) want to show it to you. Interesting, though, it was actually a marketplace, Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting because I I naturally thought of it that way. You'll get a kick out of it. It It's a very Texas thing. It was a marketplace for hunters to find places to hunt. Perfect. Perfect. That still doesn't exist in the right way today. <laughs> I'm still mad it. about it. Let's do it. There's yes. somebody trying out there. I actually talked to the entrepreneur a couple of years ago. I was like, that was my idea 20 years right. ago. <laughs> you know, There's someone so listening to this he's podcast working on now it. that's going to go do it. It's going to Call go for startups. <laughs> but so it was a marketplace, yeah. you know, website. And so I just having had that 10 years before as my, my school project, it, was, it made sense to me that what they were doing at Union, you know, Union Square. And so they raised a fund. We were 20% of that fund. That was my first investment. Wow. How did people reach you? In, in you know, 2004, you're sitting in Austin. Now, I mean, you tweet, you email, you... You work know, on your brand. Right. How did, they, how did they find you? How did you find them? So, yeah, how do you reach the ivory tower of institutions, right? right? It's, I mean, it's that hard, was, that's it's, kind it's, of the joke, it's right? It's hard now, but I imagine it was even harder... 2004? I think so. Uh, in, in some ways, um, even then, paying attention to who were active investors. So you, you know who the big, like, there are public listings even right. back then, probably on paper form, right. uh, you know, of who the big endowments and foundations are. Right. And I think we were clear targets because we were traditionally supporters of venture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, in Fred and Brad's case, they used a, a placement agent. And okay. I, it happened to be one I mm. didn't know. So if this ended up in just a random pile on my desk, but they they had that help trying to find someone that was active, to try to put their deck mm. together. Mm. Um, they kind of haven't needed one since then. <laughs> imagine. But um, but they they used someone originally, um, and I literally I can remember the pile of PPMs because as as sort of the new guy on the team, I went through all the the pile of four hundred PPMs a year. And uh, from that pile, we ultimately did a couple of them. One was a buyout fund um, here in New York, uh, and the other one was a venture fund mm. here in New York. How, how did the how did the how did Utemco's allocation to venture change f- over time from the time you started uh, leading those deals? So I should give credit uh, to our former CIO Bob Bolt. He came from California in the late 90s where he had seen venture explode. So he was a believer in venture through the cycle. Mm. And I think that was u- mm. certainly useful to me because it was something I liked doing. We had a 4% target uh, to venture, which was incredibly high at the time because we were kind of 1%. And 1% of, of $14 billion is a lot of money, and 4% right. is a lot more money. Mm. And, and so trying to get that much exposure in venture was, we thought, frankly, impossible mm. at the time, especially to quality managers. Over time, we did build out a program that ultimately reached um, north of 4% because we were lucky and had some nice appreciation. We should talk about the denominator effect at some point. But we kept investing when others weren't. Note that we were also public, and we had to write big checks. Even then, we needed to write big checks. And that was a challenge because you weren't going to get into Kleiner or Sequoia or Benchmark or, or you know whoever the, the popular ones of the day were. So... In some ways, out of necessity, our strategy was to go find the next generation of great managers. And that led us to Union Square, which led us to Foundry, right? Um, which led us to Spark, you know, which led us to True. So great investments that weren't obvious at the time, as it happens, out of necessity, but also having, I think, the risk profile and being willing to make that investment. So let's talk that, about um, the... The, the size of investments that you had to make for a second, because we've had a lot of fund of funds managers uh, on the podcast. One way in which very large pools of capital like endowments allocate smaller chip is through other people, so through fund of funds. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you thought about that at, at Utimco and how you approach that um, if if at all, I think I think you guys did invest in some fund of funds managers, correct? So not directly into just so our audience knows, not directly into the venture firms themselves, but through another fund. Correct. We we did both. 
Okay. So in that effort to go from 1% to 4%, uh, we did employ a couple of fund of funds. I um, mean, it was, it was Knightsbridge and Fisher Lynch yep. um, at the time. And, and they offered a couple uh, different things, but generally access, identification right. and access mm -hmm. uh, and ability to write smaller tickets. So that's through those fund of funds, at least at that point in time, that's how you might have gotten access to a Sequoia or Kleiners mm -hmm. uh, uh, of the like. And in fact, one of the mandates was this list of 30 GPs we want exposure to, and we'll pay you if you can get this list of mm. 30 GPs. Mm. But if not, we don't want anything else. Right. So that that was a way to get access to that top tier because remember we were public and we had to write big checks. Right. And even then the GPs didn't want that. We found we were we had much more success doing it ourselves, investing in this next generation of managers directly, where mm -hmm. we could go write a 25 or $50 million check. And um, and I think that's one of the challenges of the model is LPs would much rather do it themselves. Right. I mean, venture is kind of the fun asset class. It's the sexy asset class in the private capital stack. Like, like credit is a great way to make money. Yeah. Not exciting. Right. And 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 so that you know, it was more fun for LPs to focus on venture. And I think that is why there's some resistance to from LPs, even even when rationally they should employ someone to help them. In some cases, they're understaffed, so it should be outsourced staff. In other words, they should use a fund of funds to help they them should use, them. Right. They should use some model sure. to get leverage when they have too much capital yep. and not enough bandwidth and maybe not enough expertise. Yep. Was your So you mentioned focusing on emerging managers as well as early stage investors. Were those two, how were those two coupled? I think, I think, there was correlation, maybe not causation. Mm. Uh, so uh, for us, the most interesting, uh, I think most endowments and foundations are, are value-biased investors. So the idea of buying early at a low price mm. is very attractive. And the challenge being security selection with little data. And, and so when you look at early stage, if you get it right, you get the biggest reward. And when you think about venture capital in an equity portfolio, not just a private cap, you know, portfolio, venture capital should be the highest alpha, frankly, highest volatility returns. And if done correctly, you get rewarded for that illiquidity and that risk that you're taking. So I think we had a bias that drove us towards early stage. Mm. I think the emerging manager piece was we could write big checks. Right. And, because and there weren't a bunch of other LPs in there. Right. So we and we thought we could evaluate those managers and write right. big checks and have a nice position in the fund. And that worked out really well um, because emerging managers and small funds are going to have a little more volatility themselves. And so given that we had some success, we saw the returns related to those, those kind mm -hmm. of risk factors. I want to get to Foundry next because um, at least from afar, I think, What's going on over there seems to be really, really fascinating and obviously a unique enough opportunity for you to uh, leave UTIMCO after after 12 years. What are, what are some of the things that you learned along the way? Maybe this is just all partnerships. Um, it's very challenging to, to reduce the noise among humans in a partnership and, to, and make sure that the signal is strong. And I think um, of all the partnerships out there, my partners, Founder Group, had done the best job of that, of making sure that human emotions and mm. natural power trips and, and all of that don't get in the way of a very rational discussion. And I, I think working hard at partnerships and looking for partnerships that balance each other is super important. And, and it's something that we've always put way more emphasis on is mm. how do you get to your decisions how do you make each other better or worse? Because right. you do see partnerships where they make each other worse, mm -hmm. frankly. And, and then that's the collection of lone wolves and who shines and all that. Right. So focusing on those partnership dynamics was another huge lesson that we learned yeah. along the way. It's a really difficult thing to evaluate from the outside also. Yeah, you got, I mean, you got to understand people and, yeah. and what their incentives and motivations are. And, and you'll find that the people that are most self-aware of themselves can also share that within their partnership. Mm. And if they're willing to show vulnerability to each other, you see that in body language and the way mm. they interrupt each other or don't interrupt each other, uh, the way they'll disagree with a smile on their face. These are all little things that you can pick up on pretty quickly that they may not even mm -hmm. realize. 
in their own interactions, how they treat each other. Interesting. Yeah. Just take, it takes time too. You have to spend a lot of time together. It's not an easy thing. It's not a thing you can accelerate in terms of learning about, learn, getting the insights into how people operate and how they interact and, and those things. Well, I mean, that's what you guys do as VCs. Yeah. You're pattern matching on right. interactions among founding teams. Right. Yeah. Not that different. Right. You know, that they have a big idea or a big dream and they're going to go build it. Well, all my all my VCs that we interview, like they're the founding team mm -hmm. and they have a strategy and the portfolio they're going to go build. What is there for me to believe they can do it together and they're going to be strong together? I mean, it's, right. it's the same thing. Are there are there any funds from that period of time that that you miss that you look back on and you're like, "Man, I fucked that one up." Sure. <laughs> I mean, we, we and, missed and, all and over guess, the place. Guess, what, you what, know? Were, what were maybe the things that you missed when you look back now and you're like, hmm, at Fund X, you know, I just, I got that piece wrong. And maybe now I wouldn't or, or right. would. Are, are there ones that you go back to in your mind sometimes? So, so I, I mean, you, you, make, you make errors of omission, you make errors of commission. Mm. So certainly uh, there are errors of omission. Often they were related to bandwidth. And this mm -hmm. gets back to why large institutions aren't appropriately staffed. And, you know, they should have had probably two people focused on venture all the time if they wanted to build a big portfolio rather than a half a person who so also why, had, why, yeah, you know, so management stuff. Why, why don't they? That's a really good question. I mean, it, you look at these some of these endowments and they're managing tens of billions of dollars and there's 15 people working there. Presumably they have a the billion a piece, right? <laughs> like, like, that's kind of the way we roll. Presumably you know? <laughs> they have the budget though to good, add another ratio. person to venture. Uh, so certainly they could, and um, I can I can just imagine my old CIO Bruce listening to this. And right, I know that he's always looking to add people, um, to, and he's really tried to beef up the team. He's done a good job of that. Uh, there's a great team there. I will say that. Sometimes when you add people, depending on the type of people you're able to attract, just as if you were to add an associate and turn them loose to go do a bunch of investments, that's not comfortable. Mm. It's certainly not comfortable when you're dealing with a lot larger numbers. Mm. And so the, the, the quality of person, I think, is more important than the number of person. you got to give endowments, maybe not so much Utemco, but endowments generally credit for hanging on to their people for a long time. This business context is built over time, over repetitions and over pattern recognition. And you, it takes so long to see results, it's hard to get better at this job, either be it GPs or LPs. So I, I think it takes such a long time that you need to get experience. And they've, they've done a good job of hanging on to a smaller number of people. And that is what you do when you can't sort of spend the money to be an outsourced private firm that can charge fees that, I mean, you're always a cost to the endowment if you're there or the institution that if you're there. And so you're, you're, it, you're, it's a budgeted management fee. Mm. And in our, in Utemco's case, it was always challenging because it was a public mm. entity. And when you look at salaries versus professors versus football coaches and all that sort of stuff that ends up in the paper, that's not a happy thing. Right. I think it's a broader point, though, on institutions for our economy. When you look at what the Canadians have done for their pension plans, they are paying. They're attracting really talented people up there. They're attracting people that, that are compensated as if they were an outside money mm -hmm. manager on a market basis. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing talent migrate, especially from, from pensions, private pensions, public pensions in the U.S., to Canada. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing the most talented yeah. people go there. And I think that's interesting because they're doing it right, investing in people so right. they can get those returns. Right. So tell us about Foundry Next. We always talk about all, all my history, my 13 years at <laughs> yeah, Utemco, I know, right? I I, like People want that perspective yeah, um, and, and for it's, sure. It's valuable. I mean, we, we, um, we actually haven't yet had someone from an endowment on the... Actually, we have interviewed a couple people that have endowment experience so, but it's i think it's a really interesting perspective to have yeah good we should talk um, about some pure set that could come on here that, that'd be awesome that'd be awesome that'd be awesome um foundry next so so let me give you context please um for why uh foundry next made sense for my partners and why it made sense for me and as i think that's that's important for people to understand um 
the Foundry guys personally, you know, raised uh, uh, their first fund in 2007. Uh, it's a $225 million fund. Three years later, they raised another $225 million fund in 2010. Three years later, they raised another $225 million fund in 2013. Right. And in 16, they raised, guess, another $225 million fund for early stage. In 2013, they raised a select fund, as they called it. It was one of the first opportunity funds to invest, in that case, only in Foundry Group early stage companies that were, that were having success. So that sets up part of the strategy for Foundry Group Next. Along the way, they had personally been investing in small funds. This going all the way back to Fred's first fund. Brad was a personal yeah. investor in Union Square Ventures 2004. Wow. So I mean, their relationship is over 20 years old. Yeah, And, you know, so they had been investing uh, not a lot of money, but, but small tickets into a myriad of small funds. And they were serving as... I would say sometimes mentors, sometimes advisors, sometimes friends uh, to these other VC managers. And it turned out to be quite lucrative. Mm. The returns on their fund portfolio was very good. Right. Um, when they looked at that, and then they looked at the success of their growth stage investments from the Founder Group Select Fund in, in 2013, it was also a $225 million fund. Right. We looked at all that and... At the meantime, I, as now their friend after 10 years and having spent a bunch of time around them and hung out in Boulder because I have family in Boulder and it's a great place to hang were out. You, were you on their advisory board? I was on their advisory board right. the whole time and 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 truly had become friends right. with the guy. Maybe not the first year or two, but uh, they'd come down for South by Southwest, would hang out, spend a bunch of time. You know, one time we took them out on a boat, made them go swimming, drink a bunch of beers and send them to the airport wet. So, I mean, you know, there, there are some stories yeah. that I can't tell on air for sure. Um, Jason should be cringing right now, um, but I'm not going to tell those stories. And and so that, that were, there were real friendships formed, yeah. but not just with one, but with with all of them. And I, And what's interesting is they're so different even though they're all the same that I actually have stuff in common with each one. So we, we would all bond around different things. And I went to them acknowledging that I was going to leave Utimco a number of years ago. And, and they actually helped me think about looking at a couple of other things. I almost did this other uh, interesting thing that, right. that would have involved some venture too. Um, and that conversation in the context of their own partnership and where they wanted to go with their partnership, it culminated in us coming together and sinking around the idea of Foundry Group Next. Well, then we spent a year convincing ourselves that we all were sure we wanted to do this because we didn't want to mess up a friendship right. and we didn't want to mess up a partnership. And I was very clear with them. I didn't want to mess up what I saw as the best partnership in the industry. And they've never added a partner. They haven't. Right. And so this was a big move. Right. And there's a, a couple of running jokes in the partnership. And, you know, one of them is I put the limited in partner. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is that, you know, the other is that I'm the new guy forevermore. Right. You know, Seth was the new guy for 15 years and I'm the new guy forevermore. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm sure there'll be hazing, more hazing involved. They've been too busy as yet to haze me too much. Um, but I, I, I don't put it past Jason at all, especially. Um, so we, we sort of coalesced around this idea, formulated the strategy of, of funds plus direct investments, um, growth stage investments. And that was important. I don't like the idea of a standalone fund, uh, fund of funds. I think it's challenging to wrap additional layer of fees around that. I think you have challenges with sure. diversification. Um, turns out there are some people who have done it very well, uh, most of whom you've had on the show, right. I would right. argue. Right. Um, but I think it's exceptionally hard to do it well. Um, so kudos to them. And just our audience knows that that means the, the main reason it's really hard is just because after the VCs take fees and the, the fund of funds take fees, the LPs in the fund of funds, it's tough to make money. Well, I, I think it's tough to outperform exceptional, right. have exceptional right. performance. Right. Right. You're going to make money as, right. with, with any benefit of skill. You're going to do well. But do you justify your place in the portfolio given the long lockups yeah. and the expectation for venture capital yeah. returns? Yeah. And so I think getting that piece of it right is difficult. I mean, every LP is trying to do that effectively themselves. Yeah. They're a fund of funds. And you know their, their venture portfolio is a fund of funds. So when you outsource it to someone, you need to make sure that they have a strategy that's aligned with yours. They think about concentration and they have they have some angle on the market. Yep. In our case, we felt like it was really important to have both the funds 
And we thought we had an unfair advantage in the funds from their history and their knowledge of working with people in the industry. Uh, you know, there's there's really almost not anybody in the industry that I can say, hey, do you guys know so-and-so? And they're like, oh, yeah, in 1999, I saw him on a board right. and, right. Or, you know, right. or she was involved here or, you know, there's, there's a story there. Yeah. So we have that benefit. We also have the benefit of my experience at Utemco with an institutional perspective of this is the kind of manager that we can trust with capital. This is the kind of manager that would be a good fiduciary for us. There are a lot of great investors out there that are kind of cowboys, you know, high flyers, risk takers. And maybe not all of those make sense in a, in a fiduciary portfolio. You could do those with your own money. Yeah. So anyway, we had, we had an advantage on the funds piece of it. We felt like because of history, we had a specific type of manager, this, this emerging manager, this sub $100 million tech focused, super early. We think that's where you get the big outcomes, the big returns. So we thought that piece would be accretive to LPs and would make sense as part of a strategy. The piece that that we rolled into it, which I thought was important, was our ability to lead direct investments inside the same portfolio. Yeah. Uh, you know, in direct investments in growth stage companies. So you have big outcomes from the companies. Um, you can get real exposure, both from your position in the early stage fund, but also from your own direct investment. When you combine those two, and you also combine that with the founder group brand, where it's not just that you're pushing your way into a, a growth stage deal, right? Because there's there's been a lot of that, but it's you're getting pulled into that deal from the underlying fund manager and from the entrepreneur. More importantly, mm-hmm. we think that was a competitive advantage that we have because of the founder group brand and their experience and the way they've they've operated with entrepreneurs. And it's always going to be in the founder group themes. So it's something we can help with. It's something we can be involved with. If we're the last 10 million bucks into a $50 million round and they don't really want us on the board, that's not our deal. Mm. Like might be a great deal, but that's just not for us. There are plenty where someone says, hey, this is in my personal portfolio. Uh, This is one that's really a performer. This is one I don't really want them to go to market. It's working. We don't want another hand around the table. I want somebody that's a friendly hand that I know well, I know how you'll act. Would you guys come in and take a look at this before they go to market, keep them from going out and and distracting themselves from the business? And if you guys will come up with a fair price, we would be glad to have you involved. And the thing is, we've sized our fund. It's It's a $500 million fund, but we've sized our fund so that we could make investments of five to 25 million bucks into these rounds that are probably 20 to $40 million rounds so that all the insiders have capacity to play as well. So we're not have to be hogs mm. of the you know, round mm-hmm. hogs. And we think that's important too, because it's good signaling, by the way, if they're inviting us in, we want their capital alongside ours at that price point. We think it sets us up for great success in directs in addition to the funds piece of it. Yeah. So the funds are 25% of the capital, uh, 125 that, million bucks. And in funds under 100 million that you would generally describe as emerging funds? I'd say I'd say uh, generally sub 100 million. Yep, we can invest in anything we want um, that's targeted early stage investments. So as it goes above 100, there needs to be a story mm-hmm. around it. Now we invest in the Union Square Ventures' newest fund, right? Okay, clear story around that. You know, invested with True. They've been our most active co-investor yep. over the years when they do a bunch of stuff with us, and we love them. We invested with Softec. You know, that was part of our portfolio uh, of funds both personally from the guys and from me right. at Utimka. Those are all easy ones for us to invest in. We've also invested some smaller funds that we think will have larger outcomes. And kind of back to that scale issue you brought up earlier, we can write a small check. So we can write a check from a million or $2 million to you know seven or $10 million. Right. And that's kind of the range. And that makes it easier for me to invest in these small funds. Again, with big outcomes, that we think is a portfolio would be a creative. Yeah. And then direct investments, you're going to take a board seat. You're typically going to be a lead or a co-lead doing five to $20 million. Exactly. And so that, you know, we think that equates to a seven or 12% position in the company. We think that uh, it'll be my partners making, yeah. the, you know, doing those okay. direct investments. So okay. they're on the board, they're leading on that. Um, you know, if, if we do our job, then, it's it's we've we're helping source those and we're main, yeah. we're staying on top of the yeah. underlying portfolios. But when it comes time to apply direct investing skills 
Jason, Brad, Seth, or Ryan are going to lead on those. Is there precedent in the market for ben- well-known venture firms to build an LP business? I mean, is I've never, I mean, I've never. I mean, we haven't been doing this that long, but I haven't heard of it. And so, you know, one of the reasons I think Foundry Next is so interesting is because you're taking a venture firm and you're in some ways moving up the capital stack a bit and building out an LP business. Is there is there a historical precedence for that? So I think your perspective's right. It's important that we're an early stage firm moving later right. rather than a late stage firm moving earlier because mm. you see more of that happen right. out there in the marketplace. Right, exactly. And I think that's an entirely different investment style and culture and frankly risk-taking profile right. that, <laughs> that doesn't work when you go from late to early. We've seen it work in our select fund where you go from early to late. So that, that gives us a different risk profile. And interestingly, you know, we think we can invest in a, a round or two before someone that has to have a spreadsheet is involved. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because we're coming from early. Mm-hmm. And that we think that lets us get in at the right inflection point before someone with a spreadsheet and frankly, lower cost of capital can price it super high. So that gets gives us a nice inflection point where we can invest. Specific to your question, has anybody sort of built up uh, an LP side of the book? Uh, you know, you've seen family offices uh, come out. Um, people have made so, generated so much wealth as GPs of firms that you've seen some elements of that. Uh, certainly on the on the buyout and private equity side, I've seen that. Sequoia did something along those lines, but they didn't take right. any. They were gonna they were gonna maybe take outside capital, and I, I'm not sure where that stands now. Yeah, but it wasn't a strategy of directs and funds together. And it was never particularly transparent. I mean, what I think is also I think very much so. Yeah. Right. What's interesting <laughs> about Foundry Next is that it's, I mean, highly transparent in terms of you both investing in funds and companies. Yeah. And I, and I think because, uh, I mean, that's the way the Foundry guys have lived. That's the way we want to live. That's, we want to be open to the market and we want to people to understand what we're doing and why it makes sense to be partnered with us. I really want to know what it was like after 12 years at an endowment that is essentially permanent capital to go out and pitch and raise a fund. I'd say if whatever I would have done, uh, I think leaving uh, a place where you've essentially grown up, you know, from your late 20s mm-hmm. to your early 40s, where you've had kids and got married and, you know, that's sort of, a lot of emotion attached to that. So I think there would have been a big transition anyway. Um, Going out to raise capital, I mean, I, I'm. It, it was quite odd. I'm seeing right. my friends across right. the table, right? right. right. <laughs> and and frankly, I, it was really rewarding. We had a number of people I've known for a long time invest with us, right. and and cemented friendships in a lot of way, right. acknowledging that we did have an interesting, you know, strategy and platform there, mm-hmm. and so that was super rewarding. I, I, I could, I can read a LP meeting like nobody else. (laughs) So I know whether they are interested (laughs) or not, or it was a total waste of time. And I know, um, in fact, I even know what, what types of questions some people are going to ask when they start to go down a path. I know where the logical conclusion of the, of the question path is going. Um, so that was, that was a very interesting experience and there were some sort of snickers and smiles exchanged, right. you know, along the way. It must be. I mean, I just imagine we were thinking about it ahead of time. Um, you know, you've been co-investing with these folks for a decade. And now all of a sudden you like take your seat across the table and you're like, now I'm asking you for a check. Is that essentially? It helps if you're sitting next to Brad Feld. Yes, yes, that's really sure. not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brad's, a, I mean, Brad's a a great fundraiser, but he's such an authentic person, and he has been involved in the scene for for so long um, that he can really connect with people. And you know, one thing we should talk about uh, in a bit is fundraising and sort of some of the things that I learned along the way. Yeah, was there anything particularly surprising that you were like before before you went out to raise Foundry Next? Having given your experience, you would have thought would be a piece of cake. And in hindsight, maybe along the way was a little bit more difficult or surprising than you expected. Was there anybody that you thought was going to be a yes that was a no? So uh, nobody specific. They're like, yes, they've, you know, right. um, we'll sure get there. Uh, there were a couple of surprises. 
um, where people maybe along, you know, were ahead of their team uh, along the way. Right. And so that was, that was, that was disappointing because I didn't know how to read the group. Right. Um, but when I think about process, like, like here, here's, here's an example of something I tell people. Um, it's, it's not obvious. It's don't practice with your best leads. Go do a bunch of meetings, right. you know, with people that aren't your best leads yeah. and mm-hmm. really hone your, your pitch. Right. And, and hopefully people who don't also talk to a lot, who aren't super chatty. Right. <laughs> so, so even us, we went through Texas for a week, you know, and did meetings all over Texas that I set up with a lot of right. people I thought might be interested. Looking back, that was such great experience right. mm-hmm. for us to kind of bond on the road, get in our rhythm, understand how we interact and, and frankly, get asked a lot of questions. I, I was, I, I thought, I maybe thought this before the fundraise, but it was certainly the case that, that fundraising is a great fire for partnerships to go through and for them to refine their own thinking yeah. around the partnership and around strategy. And so it's sort of a refiner's fire. And and I think watching that interaction, you can find out things about people you didn't know and traveling together obviously yeah. is fun. I, I drove Brad all over Texas in my pickup truck and nice. that was entertaining. Um, you know, stopping at random places to have, you know, Tex-Mex. Um, nice, yeah. So we had a great run that first yeah. week and that really set us up, I think, for success and getting to know people. We ended up getting a few LPs out of that that group, but it was um, wonderful practice for us. And we did refine yeah. the strategy on the fly. There were, yeah. there were some great questions asked that we hadn't thought of. That would yeah. have been a great reality show. You and Brad Feld in your pickup <laughs> truck, just driving around Texas, sure. raising a fund. For sure. Um, we, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, uh, in, when we were raising Notation Capital's fund, uh, in hindsight, we I mean, we couldn't have really known this at the time because it was the first time doing it, but we I think we ordered a bunch of the meetings all wrong. And in hindsight, there were a, a number of meetings that we took very early on in the process that we had we were no not business ready for being yeah. in, which was a huge, huge learning for us well, the first time I mean, around. Uh, we hope, like, I mean, part of our our shtick at, at Foundry Group is that we want to help the the GPs yeah. think about their own business. Like, how do you grow your own business? What do you want to be in fun to? You know, do you have the right number of partners? Do you have the right resources? How are you going to pay for that? What's the right portfolio strategy for you? And let's think about fundraising. Let's let's let me be the friendly LP that that fires back and asks a lot of those questions without prejudice. And and I think we can help GPs in the same way that you help your companies get ready for a Series A. Like we can help you get ready for your next fundraising. And I can bring an LP perspective, which is great and all fine and dandy. But we also have GP perspective for when you get in a situation with a company that you don't, you've not seen before. And so-and-so GPs acting in a way that you don't understand why they're, yeah. they're, they're doing that in a round dynamic. Mm. Call Jason, Seth, Brad, or Ryan, you know, and we can talk about that. So we, we think we can be more than just capital and more than just a co-investor. Yeah. To to these GPs, if we're doing our job right, we, we can help you think yeah. about your own business. I when uh, we've been founders, and what was useful to me before being a VC was um, certain VCs that would translate VC speak, and just to figure out exactly what the little detail sentences off word actually meant. And so I think there's definitely equivalent for GPLP, especially for newer GPs, to actually just be able to translate LP speak, especially early on with first first fund. Well, you guys are doing a so, great service with this podcast. Yeah. No doubt about it. So you just closed Foundry Next. It's the first fund. What does the next year look like? You hired someone. She's, so in, she's in this room. We, 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 should, we should let Jacqueline introduce herself. She's in this room. Yeah. Okay. Jacqueline, would you explain yourself? Now's the time. So step one, <laughs> hire someone great. Jacqueline, you're on. Yeah, I guess Introduce that remains yourself. to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of fell into this the same way I guess Lyndall fell into you, Timco, which is that um, I had the pleasure of taking a class that Jason taught that, on the Venture Deals book oh, that Brad and cool. Jason wrote together. Um, and Boulder loves those guys, right? right. Um, and... But Foundry is very adamantly like we're not a legacy firm. 
So you don't ever picture yourself like, that's where I want to go work because it's not possible. So I sat in that class, loved it, um, was their TA, and then went on to run Startup Colorado, which uh, Brad Feld's involved with for a year while I finished up my JD and my MBA at CU in Boulder. Are there, there are no non-partner investment professionals, at least until now, at Foundry, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, and First one, pressure's on. <laughs> well, technically I'm Foundry Group next, so we can okay. be clear about yeah. that. Um, I don't need Jason getting any more emails about yeah. like, you yeah. hired an associate? Right, right. Um, so in any case, uh, never really thought about that as being a thing that could happen for me and mm. really loved venture in the startup world and, and got to know it uh, through Startup Colorado and just through being in Boulder. Uh, went on to work for, you know, big institutional or not institutional, big law firms. Um, yeah. Got to switch my switch my gears. Um, so I did the big law thing, uh, learned a lot doing that and, and did some M&A, but it really just like wasn't for me. And as I came to realize that, uh, so I kind of um, happened to run into Jason and was like, you know what, I'm calling in calling it in. Right. <laughs> I was like, calling in I need your help. I think I need to do something right. else. And, you know, you got out of law. And uh, so he was he was in the fundraising process and was totally exhausted. Um, he, you know, put me in touch with Jill, who's worked for him for 17 years and was like, get Jacqueline on my calendar if you can. So I took the one slot, um, drove up to Boulder, had breakfast with him and went through like all the companies he's on the board of. And, sure. you know, you could go do an operating role. You have an MBA. Right. Uh, we talked about tech stars, all sorts of things. And as we were, as we were, you know, finishing up, he said, you know, we're bringing in this new guy. He seems to want to hire somebody like we don't do that, but he really seems to want to do that. So I don't think you're qualified. I don't think he'll hire you, but I will I, huge upside. If it happens, I'll put you in touch with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tricked Lindell into hiring me and uh, here we are. So it's, um, you know, I, just, I pinch myself every day because this is like unbelievable and never thought that this could happen. But, um, you know, in Boulder at Techstars and at Foundry, there's this whole give first, you know, um, mentality and they've, they've got a hashtag and everything. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, you always do that. Like, you know, I never say no to like a Brad Feld, Jason Mendelson, Brad Bernthal's another guy in, in Boulder and Phil Weiser, who is the dean of the law school. Like those guys have done tons for me. I would never say no to them. So I took this startup Colorado role, just, you know. I'll do it. Right. Sure, it'll be good exposure right. for me. Um, and you just never think about the ways that these things will come back to you, and that's not why you do it, but you just know that it, it, it happens. So, um, feeling very lucky and, and happy to be part of this. Well, welcome, our little startup we'll here. Do, so, we'll do full, full podcast where Linda will play back up. Yeah, next time. we we will. Uh, we'll get her on and, and she'll talk about all the challenges of working with me. Yes. And oh, he's, and, he has a blog post about that, so you don't even have yeah, to talk to right. me. Right. And then and then what we should talk about is is yeah, Jacqueline's doing a little bit of everything. So from investments to operations, yeah. and and really being my partner on the road of meeting managers. I think it's important that you you don't go too far down a path by yourself and having two heads in a meeting is really useful. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a real benefit to me is having someone that, um, she didn't mention also that she's married to someone that's in, working in a startup. So, I mean, they're living right. the, the, the startup mentality and it's important that you have a perspective that's different than yours when you come out of a meeting. Yeah. Although given that she's a recovering attorney, I still can't get her to offer an opinion. <laughs> On things, so we're working on her. Okay. At least there'll be another disclaimer. If you'd like to give a disclaimer as well. (laughs) Um, We'll have a lot. So what does the next year look like? I mean, there's, there's, um, the market's been kind of choppy the last six months. Um, You just closed a lot of capital. Um, I assume you guys are being very patient. There's no pressure to deploy i mean how do you how do you think about the next 12 months you know i, I should talk about what we've done today yeah. so you know we we went out really beginning of the year and, and raised a fund um we recently closed vinyl closed on it as we we're waiting for one lp important to me uh to join and in that time we've gone from fundraise to deploy pretty quickly because of the cycle of fundraising for for GPs. It's quite active right now. So we've made a number of fund investments on the order of eight fund investments. Eight. Yep. Wow. Okay. All, all people that are wow. connected to our ecosystem. Right. And we had previous relationships with. Many that we had previous huh. relationships with and, uh, you know, a number of smaller funds that we knew uh, from prior relationships. So 
easy to sort of want to do that. Yeah. I'd say we're, we're catching our breath a bit from that. Meanwhile, we had kind of a pileup of growth investment opportunities that we knew were coming out of the early stage funds at Foundry. So that's a big part of our strategy is to pick the winners out of that portfolio. So we've, we've executed on a number of those investments. Uh, and we've announced at least one that, that falls in that other bucket of investing in things that we know that are in growth stage that weren't in our early stage right. funds. Right. So it's been, I mean, totally active year already. Haven't skipped a beat. Uh, it's been busy, you know, for sure. And then transitioning the family, you know, we just moved out to Boulder six weeks ago. So getting, getting settled, getting kids in school, and, and it's been a rock and roll year uh, for sure. The next year for us, um, you know, we're, we just like other LPs have uh, an expectation of who we will invest in, you know, over the next year and when they'll come back to market. And, um, you know, we expect that we will meet other managers along the way that take some of those positions. And so we're constantly meeting new managers. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we're also in a place, both Jacqueline and I, where we need to focus on providing some of that support to the GPs where we want to put some of that infrastructure in place as we start to now really have a portfolio yeah. uh, that matters. And so some of that sourcing mechanism for the growth stage investments, uh, we're going to be active on that. And, you know, we think that we can implement some tools and services for GPs that give them more scale, uh, the benefit of scale that they might not otherwise have. Yeah. Lyndall, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on the podcast. Um, Really, really appreciate it and uh, very excited for Foundry Next. Congrats, Jacqueline, on the gig. And, um, and uh, how do, how do uh, GPs or founders reach you best? <laughs> uh, my email is very easy to find. If they're not email. capable of finding my email, well, then they can, they can tweet me. Email or tweet. Um, <laughs> thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of